Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Elliot Fertishnik did tell me that there is a whistle on his stand back here that somehow got left over from somewhere, so in case anyone does fall asleep... I'm supposed to use the whistle. So there you go, Elliot. I've got it handy. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. If you are new to the church, I'm especially thinking of maybe IUP students who've just joined us in the last uh, couple of months. We have been working through the Gospel of Matthew since last December, December 2022, when we started with the genealogy of Jesus and his birth account. We continued with that into the spring where we spent a lot of time on the Sermon on the, uh, on the Mount. And then as recently as August, we were talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry and in particular, all of the various miracles that he was performing. This morning, we are returning to the Gospel of Matthew after a time of, away for, uh, in that series called Love God, Love Others, and Reach the World for Christ. Um, and the title of this morning's uh, sermon is Take Courage. And what we're going to be looking at is Matthew 10. This is the second of five discourses or speeches that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. And this one is often referred to as the missional discourse. And it's really good timing that it's happening right now after this series because we just spent the last couple of weeks especially talking about reaching the world. And the missional discourse is exactly that. This is Jesus giving instructions to his 12 closest companions about what to expect, what posture they should be in as they prepare to go out for the first time to take the good news to the people. And he's speaking to those 12 individuals, but he's also speaking to us. He's telling us those same things. And I'm thankful for the Lord's timing in this. It seems like a kindness from the Lord because hopefully um, you've been motivated to reach the world, to reach those around you who are lost. And so the timing of this is perfect because Jesus is going to, in his own words, tell us how we should be prepared uh, for that as we try to reach those around us. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Matthew 10. Lord Jesus, we are so very thankful for this day and what you have designed for us for this specific day. Lord, we've already seen it as we've worshiped together in song. We've seen it as we've heard people sharing at the ministry, Mike, Lord. You are at work in people's hearts. And so, Lord, I ask that you would continue that as I teach. Father, I ask that you would fill my mouth with your words, not my own. And Lord, I ask, especially for everyone hearing this, that you would help us to see the beauty of being part of your household and what that means for us. And Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this, the way I'm going to organize this today is kind of like a sandwich, this is a big encouragement sandwich. But the problem is the encouragement is sandwiched between two buns of, yikes, that sounds kind of hard. 
So we're going to deal with the top bun and the bottom bun first, and then we're going to end with the encouragement. My, my hope is as you hear this, especially as we deal with the hard sections, that you would not be deterred from reaching the world. Because here's the thing, enduring unpleasantness for the sake of the good news of Jesus is a beautiful and good thing. And Jesus loves us so much that he's willing to tell us the truth of what we can expect when we do this. When we step out in obedience to do this, he's going to tell us what could possibly happen. And sometimes it's tough, but he wants us to know because he loves us. But the other thing to keep in mind is the promise of what he offers on the other side of that difficulty is so amazingly wonderful. So we're going to have three points that we look at today. And the first one is this. Disciples, remember, this is the top bun, so this is one of the difficult sections. Disciples of Christ should expect to be received the same way as Jesus. Disciples of Christ should expect to be received the same way as Jesus. In Matthew 10, he gathers his 12 disciples and he starts telling them what to do. And we've actually already covered part of this when we were in Matthew several weeks ago. But he gets them together and he says, listen, I want you to trust the Father. As you are going out into the world, I want you to trust the Father. You don't need to take anything with you. You don't even need to pack a second set of clothes. You need to trust him for provision, for everything that you need. And not only for the material things, but you're going to be in situations where people are going to put you on the spot. And you can trust the Father to fill your mouth with exactly what He wants you to say. So you're going to trust the Father in everything that you do. And He's telling us that as well. And then, in our passage today, it starts in verse 24. He says this, Matthew 10, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus starts with a very basic, plain statement of fact, and I think you'd all agree with it. We are not above him. We are not above him. But in the world's eyes, it is going to be enough justification for the world if we are like him. If we are like him, that will be justification for the world to receive us in the same way that they received him. And we are being made like him every day. We're being made into his image. It says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are more and more becoming like Him every day. But I want you to notice what I didn't say. I said that we would be received in the same way as Him. I did not say that we would be treated the same way as Him. Here's what I mean. Literal, physical persecution is a thing in Scripture. It's very clear that that can happen to followers of Christ. It's also a reality that that is happening right now all over the world in 2023. That's a thing for people right now who are placing their faith in Christ. But you and I both know that 
in 2023 in the United States, we're not there yet. That's not part of our reality. I don't think there's anyone in here who, who thinks, if I go to work tomorrow and I share the gospel with someone, I might literally get crucified. Like we don't, that's not part of our reality. But there is a reality that we have to know is true of our time and our place. In 2 Timothy, Paul said to Timothy, he's writing a letter to Timothy, and he says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's the time we live in. We live in that time where people do not endure sound teaching. There's a philosophy that has been rampant in the world for a long time called relativism. And relativism means that there is absolutely no absolute truth, which is a funny thing to say because that in itself is an absolute truth claim, right? There is no absolute truth. There's nothing that we can hold as a standard of truth. And so if we operate under the umbrella of relativism, it means that humans can choose subjectively what we think is true for us. I get to decide what is right or wrong. I get to decide what is good or bad. I get to decide what is beautiful or ugly, true or false. And no one can argue that, even if my decisions are different than yours, no one can argue that because there is no absolute truth to hold that up against and compare. That's relativism, and that's the time we live in. So when we go out to take the gospel of Jesus, which is an absolute truth, we present that as an absolute truth, there's going to be some pushback. We're not always going to be received well. John Piper says it like this, confidence that you know some things that all people ought to believe is seen as the essence of arrogance today. On the other hand, a sense of uncertainty about what is true and about how one ought to live, accompanied by a kind of open-ended ethic and an absence of judgment on controversial issues, is seen as the essence of humility. And I think that's really interesting. I don't know if the date's up there. Yeah, he wrote that 33 years ago. So if that was true 33 years ago, think about how much more true that is today. And we see it, I think, all around us. Now, I'm not throwing out the idea of us exercising humility. Humility is the soil from which the fruit of the Spirit grow. It's a good thing that we should be uh, founded in all the time. But when we share the gospel and we present those absolute truths of Christ, there are going to be plenty who resist it, and we are not always going to be received gladly. But that is exactly what Jesus is calling us to do, to reach the world for Christ by taking the good news of this absolute truth of Jesus to those who are lost. Now, some might say, wait, that sounds hard, and I remember that the Scriptures say this. The Scriptures say, in fact, it's Jesus who says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But what you're saying, Rummel, sounds kind of hard. 
Well, here's the thing. That statement from Jesus is 100% true. His yoke is easy and his burden is light when we consider that he's talking about salvation. There is nothing that you have to do to earn your salvation. He has done all the work. He's done it all himself. There is no burden to take upon yourself to earn your salvation. But for those of us who are disciples of Christ, who have made that choice to follow him, there is a cost. There is certainly a cost because Jesus also said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is no work to be done to earn salvation, but once you are a follower of Christ, there is a cost. And carrying our cross for the sake of Christ is a privilege. It's a privilege. There is a beauty in being received as Christ was received. There's a camaraderie in it. Well, how do we see that in this passage? I want you to look at the last sentence of Matthew 20, 10, 24, and 25. The last sentence, sentence is, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Think about that. You are members of his household. A household is a group of people, a collection of people who are intimately knit together, so close that they live together in the same place and share their lives together. Now, I know that not every household looks exactly like that, but that's the idea that Jesus is getting at. He's saying, you are part of my household. You are mine. You belong to me. You're close to me. So when we are not received well, which could happen, when we take the gospel out into the world, we could be mocked, we could be insulted, we could be humiliated, our reputations could suffer in the eyes of people who are around us in our communities. When that happens, it's as good as a compliment. Because anyone who does that toward us, who receives us in that way, is basically saying to us, you are part of Jesus' household, and we receive you in the same way that we received him. It's proof that we are part of that household. So you belong to Jesus. That's the top bun. There is a cost in following Christ. We are not always going to be received well because he was not received well. Now let's look at the bottom bun in this sandwich, and this one is much harder much, much harder. Like we can wrap our minds around the fact that when we take the gospel out into the world, there are going to be people who don't like us very much. That, that in some measure can be not so bad. But this next part is tough. It says, the point is this, the cost of following Christ can mean division with those closest to us. The cost of following Christ can mean division with those closest to us. Here's what Jesus says. Now, we're jumping ahead in the passage. So, this is verse 34 through 39. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies 
will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is brutal honesty from a God who loves us. Brutal honesty that this is a a potential thing in our lives. Now, I would not say that it is in any measure guaranteed. In fact, I would probably put it in the category of unusual that this would happen. But I also know that it is a reality for some people in this room right now. You're walking through this situation right now, and it's very, very, very hard. And the Lord tells us as we read through these passages that we should be prepared for four things. We should be prepared for four things. The first thing is conflict. Remember, he started with, I do not, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Anytime, if you look throughout history, anytime there is some great new cause or event that people rally to, there are just as many people who rally away from it. There's division. It's like a sword that divides people right down the middle. There are those who are for it. There are those who are against it. There are those who kind of waver. But generally, there's like this division between those who are in and those who are not. And when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no room for wavering. Jesus either is the Son of God, the promised King, the Jewish Messiah from the Old Testament, or He's not. And we either put our faith in Him, believe the gospel, turn from our sins, pick up our crosses and follow Him, or we don't. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. It's very divisive. And that's what Jesus is making clear. When we present that reality to others in those terms, even within our own families, even within our own households, there is the possibility for some serious division and at times even the breaking of fellowship which can be very sad and very hard. We can have family members who hear about our faith in Christ and they just can't do it. They can't respond to it. They can't believe as we believe. And so a relationship that was at one time comfortable becomes very uncomfortable. Or we could have family members who hear about our faith in Christ and they don't share it and out of general care and concern from their perspective, they try hard to talk us out of it. And I'm thinking especially of any of you who've maybe grown up in a a unbelieving household, like a, a family that doesn't believe Christ. Maybe some of you, especially young people, are in that situation right now where the parents that you live with don't understand the faith that you have in Christ and are trying to dissuade you from it because they don't see it the way that you see it. And that can be really, really, really hard. But I also want to add this, that 
if there is ever the breaking of fellowship within a household, it should, as much as it relies on us, not be from us. We should not be the ones who initiate that. As much as possible, we should be the ones who, exercising wisdom and discernment, attempt to reach those in our families who are lost and avoid that breaking of fellowship at all costs. Now, Jesus makes it clear, though, that sometimes that's going to happen. It's a possibility. And so he also says that a thing that we should be prepared for in addition to conflict is a choice. He says that conflict exists, but the choice to follow him or not remains. In the passage, it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me. That's hard. Those are hard words. Now, is Jesus saying that we should not love our fathers and mothers? Is he saying that we should not love our sons and daughters? No, of course not. These are the people who are the closest to us, the people that we have the most love for in all the world, the people that it would break our hearts to lose. He's not saying we shouldn't love them, but what he is saying is we should choose to place him in the correct place of prioritization in our lives. There is a priority in our lives, and he belongs at the very, very top. And he's not messing around when he says that, like he's laying it right out. I'm at the top, even above those in your household. And so he also tells us that we need to be prepared not only for conflict and a choice, but for bearing a cross, for bearing a cross, taking up a cross. And it's really interesting language, I think, that he says this at this time. Because when you hear about us taking up a cross, what do you think of? Do you think, maybe you don't think like I do, but when I think of us taking up a cross and following him, the image I get is of Jesus carrying his cross. Does anybody think of Jesus carrying his cross? The disciples would not have thought of this. They wouldn't have thought of it because at this point in, in his ministry, they had no idea that that was his trajectory. We get the benefit of hindsight. We get to look backwards and see, oh, He's calling us to carry our crosses like he carried a cross, but they would have had no idea that that's where he was headed. Now, that's not to say that they didn't understand the term. Unfortunately, in the time that they lived, Roman crucifixion was not uncommon. Do you remember, uh, do you remember the kind of the most often quoted passage of, of Jesus' birth is in Luke 2? And at the very beginning of Luke 2, it says that there was a census that was decreed, and there's this tiny little line that we can most often forget when we read it. It says that it happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Do you remember that? So Quirinius was a Roman governor over the province of Syria, which would have included Judea. And it just put, helps us to put everything kind of historically in, their, in its place. But right before Quirinius was the previous governor of Syria, whose name was General Varus. He had the same job. Okay, so this is before Jesus was born. And it, during the time of General Varus's rule, there was some kind of uprising that he put down, and he 
made the decision, now think how awful this would be. I'm so thankful that we don't live in this situation. He made the decision to crucify a thousand Jews at the same time on one day. A thousand Jews. Now, logistically speaking, that takes a huge amount of effort. And because all of that effort and work was not going to be done by Roman soldiers, what they did was they had all of these Jews carry their own crossbeams to their own crucifixions. And so they carried their crosses and they were crucified along the roads leading into Jerusalem so that everyone coming and going from the city would see what General Varus had decreed. We don't deal with that, but the disciples would have understood what it meant to carry a cross. We are charged with proclaiming Christ. That is our cross to bear. And when we take that cross, we take up that cross and we proclaim the good news of Jesus to a world that is badly lost, there is the possibility of consequence. We could be sacrificing certain career ambitions. We could be giving up certain comforts. We could be sacrificing some measure of our fortunes. We could be uh, taking a hit to our reputations. And we could even, as this passage is clearly saying, lose relationships with those who are closest to us or lose quality of those relationships. John Bunyan said this, and I love the, the old English language here. He says, The law of Christ hath provided two ways of obeying. The one to do that which my conscience do believe that I am bound to do actively. And where I cannot obey it actively, there I am willing to lie down and suffer what they shall do unto me. And he lived that out. Do you hear in that statement his choice and the bearing of his cross? That's what we're called to do. We're called to take up that cross. Now here's the fourth thing that he wants us to be prepared for, and it's adventure. He wants us to be prepared for adventure. I love adventure, just me personally. I, that's not to say I love like hardship and difficulty, but I just like new stuff. I like going places I haven't been before. I like experiencing things I haven't experienced before. I like kind of not knowing what the next thing is. And Jesus is offering that. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When he talks about us laying down our lives for his sake, he is not offering nothing in return. He's not offering nothing in return. We are not asked to only give things up. We are not asked to only lose things. In fact, quite the opposite. He's saying if we look at what we perceive that we have and we hold on to it tightly because we don't want to lose it, we will lose something else much greater. What he's saying instead is that when we lose our lives, when we lay ourselves down, when we give up the things that we love and that we like, for the sake of the gospel, we find life, His life, which is so much greater 
than any life that we could manufacture for ourselves. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. But here's what you got to know. He says, if we lose our lives for his sake, we find it. You will never know what that is on the other side of that. You will never know the life that he has for you unless you actually do it. Unless you actually lay down your life to see what it is that he has for you on the other side of that. Will he tell you in his scriptures in generalities? Yes, he will tell you that there is much blessing in following Christ. He will tell you that there's life. He will tell you that there's goodness. He will tell you all of these things. But will he tell you specifically what is going to happen when you take that step of faith specifically in your life? No, you got to do it to find out. You've got to do it to find out. You will not know unless you do it. It's like standing on the edge of the diving board when you were a kid. Standing on the edge of the diving board, wondering if you should really jump. You won't know unless you do it. There is life in Christ that can be found only if we are willing to give up our own and walk by faith, not by sight. He doesn't give us the sight first. We have to walk by faith. So, we learned in the top part of the sandwich that there is a cost for following Christ, that we could be maligned as part of his household. We learned from the bottom bun of this sandwich that that cost could even mean division within our own households. But now let's get to the middle part of the sandwich. He says this. The point is this. Jesus is clear. Despite the potential for difficulty, disciples need not fear. Let me say it again. Jesus is clear. Despite the potential for difficulty, you need not fear. There are plenty of reasons that he gives us for courage in this passage, but let me read it first. This is the middle of the passage, Matthew 10, 26 through 33. He says this, So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can deny both soul and body in hell. Destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in, hev in heaven. I think there are probably more, but I see four reasons in here that we can find encouragement. And encouragement literally, in, to be encouraged literally means to be filled with courage. So we can take courage 
from four things in this passage. And the first thing is the very first word, so. It's like a therefore, which we've talked about lots of times. It comes right after that sentence in verse 25 that says that we will be maligned as part of his household. Well, that doesn't sound like an encouragement. It sounds like a reason to be discouraged, but it is an encouragement because of what he comes next, because of what he says next. He says, so have no fear of them for or because, here's why, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. That verse right there makes it very clear that what Jesus is talking about is proclaiming the gospel, saying the things that Jesus said. This goes well beyond just living an ethical or morally upright life. Those things are good. Those are things that Christians should do. But no one gets saved by seeing how you live. They get saved by responding to the gospel. So Jesus is talking about what we should go out into the world and say, all these mysteries I'm telling you, tell everybody. They're not mysteries anymore. Tell everybody. And many will believe you, and some won't, and those who don't won't like you very much. But here's what he's saying. There is coming a day, there is coming a day where all of these things that I've given you to say that people don't believe, they're all going to be proven true. There's coming a day where everything you say is going to be proven true. You've heard the scripture, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 45. Let's put that in context. This is the Lord speaking. And he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And this is the word. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. Now, what I don't want us to do is use that reality as like a I told you so moment for those who don't believe us. Like our hearts should break for the lost and we should try to reach as many as we can and rescue people out of that situation, that situation of being ashamed at the end. Amen. But there's also true that there is coming a day when Jesus is going to return and his judgments and his justice are true and good. And everyone, whether they have yet or not, will recognize the absolute truth of Jesus. And so the things that you've been given to say, you should not hold back from saying. There's no reason to keep yourself from speaking these truths because they will all be proven true. How many have ever heard of a guy named Hugh Latimer? Anybody ever heard of Hugh Latimer? He was an Anglican minister in the 1500s during the time of a couple of British monarchs, but he was, he was speaking at his church in the pulpit 
one morning, and I think it was Henry VII or something like that was in attendance. And Hugh Latimer knew <laughs> as he stood in the pulpit that he was going to say some things that King Henry didn't like very much, which is like a bad position to be in, right? And he said out loud, before he preached his sermon, he said out loud, Latimer, be careful what you say, King Henry is here. And then he paused for a minute and he said, Latimer, be careful what you say, the King of Kings is here. And then he preached his sermon and King Henry didn't like it very much, but he didn't hold back from speaking what was true. So take courage the words you've been given to speak are and will be proven true. Here's the second encouragement in this passage. As unrealistic as it may be for us in the United States of America in 2023 that we would actually lose our lives in service to Christ, that's pretty unrealistic for most of us. But if it happens, that's all it would be. That's all it would be is losing our physical life. Our bodies would die which is going to happen anyway, unless Jesus returns, right? Our souls would remain intact and forever in blissful paradise with the Lord. That's a pretty good trade-off, right? That's a pretty good deal. He says in this passage, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the, the soul. Remember, if you are a disciple of Christ, you don't even belong in this world, really. I mean, I know the Lord has put you but here, but Philippians 3, 20 and 21, and I don't have it in my notes, but let me make sure I don't misquote it. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. That's where we belong. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If we give up these bodies, we are exchanging a lowly body for a glorified body, like his resurrection body. It, the deal just keeps getting better. He also says this. He says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So don't fear those who can only destroy the body, but rather fear him who can destroy soul, both soul and body in hell. Now listen, don't read that as a threat. That is not the Lord threatening us. He's reminding us to place him, to place God in right standing as compared to men. You don't have to fear men. But there is a healthy fear of God that puts him in the rightful place and produces worship and obedience. If we put men in that place, who do we end up worshiping? Men. He says, fear God. Put him in the rightful place and it will produce worship and obedience. Now, there's also a, a verse at the end of this passage that I almost skipped because it's there's a lot we could talk about. But I'm not going to skip it, and we're just not going to talk about it as much. It says this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is like one of those verses that sometimes people can read. Believers in Christ can read and think, oh no, there have been times 
when I should have spoken and I haven't, when I was worried about what people would think of me and I haven't, I've in some measure been ashamed of the gospel. Does that mean that I've denied Christ before men and now I'm going to be denied by him before the Father? Well, let me assure you that those of you who are saved are not going to lose your salvation. Spurgeon said it, and we've said it here many, many times, if we could lose our salvation, we would. There are lots of times that we screw up, and if that was the criteria for us losing our salvation, we, none of us would have it. But Jesus said in the Gospel of John that none of those who come to him is he going to lose. None that the Father calls is he going to lose. He also says in that same gospel that we, no one can snatch us out of his grip. No one can snatch us out of his hand. Paul writes in Romans that the calling on our lives can never be revoked. And it goes on and on and on. There are so, there's so much scriptural justification for assuring us that if we are saved and in Christ Jesus, we can't be lost, can't be taken away from Christ Jesus. So why did Jesus say this? Well, I want to remind you that his original audience is the 12 disciples, the 12 original disciples. And who was standing there among those 12? Judas Iscariot, who denied him before men. I think what Jesus is saying here rather is that he's making it clear that there is no room for wavering when acknowledging him as the Son of God. And we shouldn't forget that. We should examine ourselves. We should say, have I fully trusted in Jesus for my salvation? And if I have, I'm not going anywhere. Jesus is going to hold on tightly to me. But it also informs our ministry. It informs when we go out to talk to people, we know that there's no room for wavering. That is going to affect the way we preach the gospel, the way we share the gospel. There is a healthy fear of the Lord that is good. He has us firmly in his grip. So take courage. Your souls are safe with Christ. Here's the third encouragement. Good news, you are worth more than sparrows. Good news, you're worth more than sparrows. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And then he says, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I looked it up. Do you know how many sparrows there are in the world right now? Estimate, 1.4 billion sparrows. All right, and a sparrow's life is pretty short compared to ours. So in our lifetime, in the average lifetime of a human being, think about the billions upon billions of sparrows there are. And the Lord is aware of every one of them when they fall to the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I interpreted in my mind that fall to the ground means they died. Like here's this sparrow that the Lord created, and when it falls to the ground and its life ends, the Lord's aware of that because he cares about the sparrow. But do you know that the Greek word that is translated falls to the ground, and we think possibly that it means dies, is also used to mean anytime something lights upon or lands on the ground. Now think of those 1.4 billion sparrows. How many times does an individual sparrow touch the ground? A lot, right? A lot. 
Now take that times 1.4 billion sparrows times all the sparrows that have been in your lifetime. The Lord is aware of every time that sparrow touches the ground. That is a lot of care. And if he cares about sparrows like that, how much more does he care about you? So take courage. He values you and he sees you. And finally, here comes the bald joke, Adam Jones. The hairs on your head are literally numbered, even if that number is very small, okay? (laughs) The hairs on your head are literally numbered. Now, doesn't it follow that the Lord, if he knows every time a sparrow touches the ground, every sparrow, doesn't it also follow that he would be close enough to you that he could literally separate one hair from another and keep count? That's what Jesus is saying. He is so close that he can separate one hair from another. If you're a parent who has brushed a little girl's hair, you know how crazy that is. Separate one hair from another and keep count. So if you suffer anything in the cause of Christ, if you lay down your life as a disciple, if you pay a cost in taking the good news of Jesus to the world, it is not because he is disinterested or distant from you. He is so so close. So take courage. God is near. So as we close, I want to remind you of a couple of things. He is calling us to speak the truth of the gospel to a lost world. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned 2 Timothy chapter 4. It was for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's verse three and four. Verse five says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, it would be really easy to think, He's talking to pastors and teachers. That doesn't apply to me. And there's some truth to that because Paul is writing to Timothy, who was a pastor of a church. But I think this applies to all of us. I think it applies to all of us because the Lord has given all of you some sort of ministry. And the end goal of that ministry is always, which is a big word, but I feel confident saying it, the end goal of that ministry is always, always to reach the world for Christ, which means sharing the gospel. People will be saved as they respond to the good news. They have to hear it. A couple of weeks ago, Joe said in a sermon, devotion to Christ creates opportunities to share Jesus. And I think that's exactly right because as we devote ourselves to Christ, our lives are going to change. There is going to be a measurable effect, but that's not enough. It, we have to see that as creating opportunities to share Jesus. Now today in this sermon, I've quoted so far Spurgeon and Bunyan and Latimer and Piper, but have you ever heard this author? He said this, They may not read the Bible, but they will read the Christian. RF post. Have you heard of RF post? Random Facebook post. (laughs) I was scrolling through Facebook the other day, and I saw this, and I was like, that is true. That does not mean you can believe everything you read on Facebook, but that's true. They will read the Bible. They may not read their Bibles, but they will read 
They're Christians. But that's not enough. It has to create opportunities. We have to see that as creating an opportunity to tell them about what Jesus has done for them so that they can respond. They have to hear it. And I really appreciate in today's passage, as hard as some of it was, I appreciate the bluntness of Jesus. He's totally willing to say to these 12 men who are his closest companions, here are some really hard things that might happen to you when you do this. And he says those things to us too because he loves us in the same way. He loves us so much that he literally laid down his life to die for us. Fear closes our mouths. My mouth has been closed more times than I care to admit because of fear. And Jesus is telling us, you don't need to fear. So we can and should take courage because he's close. He cares about you. I forgot to call the band up. Band, you can come on up. Come on up. Take courage because he is close. He cares about you. He holds your soul safe. His word is proven true, and he offers life that we can't possibly imagine to us and to those who are lost but can be found when they hear the gospel and respond. Amen? Let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Will you stand with me, please? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. And we know that sometimes love means being told hard things that we sometimes don't want to think about. But Father, we know that you love us and you're willing to tell us the truth. And you've given us the truth. So Father, I ask that you would cause your word to dwell richly in our hearts, Father. That we would, that the seed of this word would produce courage in our hearts. And that we would be so filled with courage because of the promises from this passage that we would not waver in the tiniest bit, that we would not be swayed at all from any opportunities that you present to us to share the good news of Jesus to a lost world. Father, I ask that you would cultivate your fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in each one of us, that our lives would really look different, that would that people would wonder why we look different and that we would see those opportunities to tell them why our lives look different. It's not because we're just good or we try real hard, but it's because we've been literally changed by you. Our hearts are brand new. Father, we thank you for the cross that you bore. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to what you're calling us to bear for the sake of of Christ. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.